Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 349 of Charlotte's Podcast Beyond 300, almost getting there to 350. Uh, pretty good stuff. Uh, I'm here with co hosts Sarah Archer and Handle Review, and we've got a, uh, I said Handle Review. Le review. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Handle? Hannah Lanou, Hannah Larue, review. Hannah La- Lanou helps you get reviews. <laughs> there you go. That's your new publicity angle. I Hannah like Review will get you reviewed. Gwen's okay. clapping <laughs> or banging the desk. So. All right. You know what I'm talking about. Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, we're here today with um, a great author feature with awarding author and founder of Star Creek Press, Julie Matheson. She's going to talk about her novel, The Starlet Letter, which has been described by reviewers as a quirky, lighthearted historical mystery with wonderfully developed characters. Yeah. And up next, we have a two minute tip from Paul Reale of Charlotte Lit called Embracing Beach Reads. Yeah. And our, uh, we got uh, Robert Babaron, author of In Transit Passenger, with his blog post, um, The Writing That Next Chapter. And then, as always, we're going to finish with our reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode. Yeah, but first, what's up with the podcast books? This month, uh, we're celebrating the release of book five in the Write Quotes series titled uh, Writing Techniques and Characters. Yeah, we're super excited to bring this one out. Um, These have very inspirational and practical quotes in these books. They come from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors who live in more than 33 U.S. states and five countries. Yeah, this book reveals how writers really feel about writing techniques and characters. Um, To learn more, just head over to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the Podcast Books tab in the menu bar. Um, You can order the book online and in print wherever books are sold. Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quotes series, which focuses on the writing life, can be downloaded for free online. That's our gift to the writing universe. So just look for that (laughs) link on the podcast books page of our website. Yeah, and you can also pre-order the upcoming books in the series now. And when you do, you help support the podcast. Uh, We're we're already up to uh, five books now. And uh, the sixth one is going to be on writing community revision and editors with an August 1 release. And book seven is the emotional writing journey with a September 1st release. And book eight is publishing and bookmarking with an October 1st release. If you want to receive all eight of these wonderful looks for free, you can join our street team. You can just go to the link at the contact tab on the menu bar at charlottereaderspodcast.com or also on the podcast books page of the website. There's a link there. All you have to do to receive all ebooks free is just agree to uh, leave short, honest reviews online about the books. Just a few words about how you felt about them. Um, these books aren't heavy reads, but they're full of weighty tips and reflections. Yeah, and don't forget that if you become a Patreon supporter of the show for as little as $5 a month, we'll give you all the books for free before they release, and that's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews um, that you'll be able to access on our channel on the craft and business of writing. So lots of good stuff. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, here we are with Act One, our interview portion of the show. Um, Julie Matheson is the author uh, we're interviewing today. Her book is The Starlet Letter. As you can tell, it's a takeoff on the classic, The Scarlet Letter. Um, Tell us about uh, Julie, Sarah. 
she is the founder of Star Creek Press and the award-winning author of novels for readers of all ages. Her books have been the recipient of the Eric Hoffer Book Award for Best Middle Reader, the First Horizon Award for Debut Books, the Best Book Award for Children's Fiction for American Book Fest, and the Writer's Digest Best Ebook Award for YA Fiction. Um, she's also a two-time Book Life Prize semifinalist and Wishing Shelf finalist. She lives in the Pacific Northwest where she writes and speaks about the interface between traditional and independent publishing, a topic we like to talk about here on the show too, and also the role of quality self-published works in maintaining a diverse and robust literary ecosystem. Yeah, I had a good conversation with her about uh, lots of different topics uh, in addition to her book relating to the writing world, so lots of fun. Uh, so give us a little brief synopsis of the book, uh, Hannah. Yeah, it's a book one of the Canary House Mysteries, a tongue-in-cheek historical mystery series featuring amateur sleuths and literary themes. Um, when a washed-up Ziegfeld Follies star goes missing, can the Vanderbeek twins crack the case without breaking their necks or losing their hearts? <laughs> yeah, mm. it's fun. It's, uh, know the it's set in New York uh, <laughs> right after the Depression, and they're living in this boarding house, and they're all kind of eccentric characters in the house, and these two 18-year-old twins are trying to solve this uh, mystery. So lots of fun. Hey, let's listen in. All right, Julie, welcome to uh, Charlotte Ridge Podcast. Well, thank you. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, and congratulations on the latest book, The Starlet Letter. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun book. Uh, we'll talk about the book in just a second. Uh, I enjoyed meeting you when we both participated in the Book Life Indie Author Forum where we talked about the value of book awards and how to submit your book for consideration. You've won a number of awards, uh, which is a testament to your writing, and now we have your latest, The Starlet Letter, which uh, I think on the cover says book one of the Canary House Mystery. So there's going to be more. Is that right? That's correct. There are a planned series of five books. I mean, uh, yeah, five books in the series. Have you already planned them out? Do you know kind of what's going to happen? or? To some extent, um, there is a, a meta arc that spans yeah. the five books that has to do with the main characters. So each book is a standalone with a mystery to be solved. Um, and each book centers on a work of um, literature from the American canon. So mm. this one is based clearly on the Scarlet Letter. Right. <laughs> uh, so I play a lot with literary themes. The second one is uh, going to be centered around The Last of the Mohicans. Ah. So starting on that, uh, eventually. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I want to ask you about this. You've written middle grade, you've written fantasy. You've now got 18-year-old uh, amateur sleuths that are twins so you've moved from witches and dragons to a madcap mystery set in new york amongst new york society in the 1930s and i'm just wondering how you made that move yeah that's a great question um i on the one hand enjoy writing clearly in different genres um but there are elements that are consistent with all my books primarily the interest in history so um, I often will start a project prompted by just a little idea or even a voice um, and being an avid reader of a lot of different genres. Um, I'm kind of interested in, in writing everything, um, but there is always kind of a, a caricaturized quality to my books. They're always very voice centric and um, there are often explorations of different genres and tropes. I, I tend to not see a hard line between genre fiction and literary fiction. So I enjoy kind of treading that line. Mm -hmm. uh, but for mysteries, I love to both read and watch mysteries, especially the Agatha Christie kind of very classic old school or, uh, you know, the BBC uh, productions and all of that went into this series. Yeah, and there's a lot of banter in this uh, book, too. I mean, back, back and forth with the characters, and you've got a number of very interesting characters that you might find in one of those kind of Agatha Christie-type movies because everyone's in the room of the boarding house. you got seven or eight different... Uh, well, we're, we're, it's the Vanderbecks, right? Uh, and we're uh, let's ground our listeners a little bit in the story of this cursed family with these 18-year-old twins who are amateur sleuths. Yes, yes. Um, it's it's Vanderbeeks. Vanderbeeks, um, okay. Yeah, and uh, you know they are of the sort of the Knickerbocker stock uh, <laughs> that was part of the New York elite society, meaning that their family went back to um, 
to Amsterdam and um, Dutch lineage. And yeah, they're kind of the black sheep of New York society. Um, they're always known to be eccentric. They have this boom and bust history in their past. They live on the Upper West Side, whereas you know the, the rest of society is centered on the Upper East Side. So it's 1931, um, they're in the Great Depression. Um, they've lost their fortune, but they've managed to keep their house. And so they've taken in borders to make ends meet. And their borders are, you know, very quirky, interesting characters uh, who become, uh, you know, instrumental to the twins solving cases. And that's the backdrop uh, for the seventh tenant checking in to the turret room. And that is Babs Leroy. And she is a Ziegfeld Follies star who is coming back to the limelight after having mysteriously disappeared. And so it's her mystery that intrigues the twins and gets them to sleuthing. Yeah, there's a fun paragraph about the Vanderbeek lineage, um, about, uh, you know, Black Tuesday, the day the stock market crashed, two Vanderbeek uncles uh, plunged to their deaths from the rooftop of an 18-story building, the most lamentable suicides ever to be cataloged into the diary. And the stocks and bonds were worthless. The state and the Hamptons sold for creditors. And all that remained was Canary House with no means to support it. And that's where we are when the story starts, right? In Canary House. That's correct. Yeah. And so that's the backdrop. That's the um, device for the whole series. And there will always be somebody checking into the turret room um, and checking out at the end of the book, but so, bringing the mystery with them. So how did you learn about this time period? What what fascinated you enough to to dive into the 1930s uh, in, in this New York society? Uh, definitely old movies. Um, mm. the, the Thin Man movies of the 1930s with their witty banter and their kind of urbane quality were, were an inspiration for listeners that are familiar with those movies. And, um, you know, I'm fascinated with New York City. New York City has all these different well-defined neighborhoods, all these ethnic influences. And I have set a, a few of my books in New York City. So I just love reading firsthand accounts. Um, I have some great memoirs of, you know, that, that period of time. Uh, it's just absolutely fascinating. I would have thought you'd had to kind of have some living experience there to get as close to it with these characters as you do in this book. Do you have any New York living experience? No, I visited <laughs> frequently and I have friends um, yeah. who are, are New Yorkers, uh, but that is one of the challenges of, writing, you know, in other places, um, my Russian themed novels, I've never right, been to right, Russia, right, right, <laughs> but right. I, I do find, you know, this is kind of writer shop talk that um, memoirs and firsthand accounts generally are more useful than the more general books about a place because they give you all of those little details that you would only know if you, if you lived there. Hmm. Now you, you chose uh, the, the main protagonist here to be twins Vivian and Viola. Um, Vivian's more about persuasion. You say Viola likes rummaging around in books. Uh, so, you know, authors always find a little bit of themselves in some of their characters. Which are, do you lean more toward, the uh, book-loving Viola or the Vivian persuader? Oh, that's a great question. Probably more toward Viola, but, um, of course, both of the twins are drawn uh, in these extreme ways, um, I was interested in the idea of twins and how twins, like siblings, often seem to be opposites, and yet they also seem to be facets of the same person in some strange way. Mm -hmm. And I have known a number of identical twins and watched their interactions with each other and the way they, they seem to share space um, and almost share some sort of internal, like knowing what the other person is thinking or going to say. And so I was kind of enchanted by that idea. Um, but you're right. I mean, every time I write a character, there's some part of it that that I somehow can connect to. And that's really one of the joys of writing, isn't it? it Tapping is. the character and exploring that. Yeah. I mean, finding out that uh, you have a little bit in common and maybe you uh, embellish a little bit and hope that you can be a little bit like some of these characters. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 But you, or hope I, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends on the characters. Are they an evil doer or are they are the good guy? You know. But you, um, I thought you might pick Viola because uh, I looked at your website and you said if I had one wish, it would be to go live in a book. Is that have you always been fascinated with story? 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, as a kid, I think it's also another common story uh, for writers moved a lot and um, had a lot of disruption in my life. So I discovered books pretty early in San Francisco, living with my mom and um, just was immediately captured by the idea that uh, on the one hand, I could go on these adventures with a book and disappear into magical and mysterious places. But on the other hand, there was always the sense of coming home whenever I opened a book. And it was something that was always in my control. And so I, you know, connected with that at a very young age and, of course, continued to read all through childhood, um, was an English major <laughs> yeah. and then became a lawyer, <laughs> which is what you do with a law degree. <laughs> I was going to get to that eventually. What is it about uh, all of us uh, lawyers who want to become uh, writers? What's going on there? Well, we're wordy people for yeah. sure. Sometimes I think about my path and wonder, you know, should I have gotten an MFA um, instead of going to law school? But I honestly feel that um, my legal education and, and the years that I practice have served me uh, because, of course, there's so much research. You have to deal with very long projects. You have to sustain yourself over a large body of work. <laughs> and there's a kind of a discipline to it um, mm -hmm. that has really, really helped me. So I think it's not uncommon to find um, that crossover. I mean, yeah. I call myself a recovering trial lawyer, but I like the way you put it. You said, I used to be a lawyer and write long briefs, making other people wrong on a part-time basis. <laughs> that, that was your job, right? To convince the judge that the other people were wrong with your, with your long briefs. They call, they don't, they call them briefs, but they're pretty long, but you do have a sense yeah. of humor. You, you, um, I noticed on your website, uh, you said you used to homeschool your kids, and when they misbehaved, you threatened to send them to school. And now they're in high school, and when they don't do their homework, you threaten to, to homeschool. Them. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, yeah. how, do, how do they take to you being a writer? Uh, they're very supportive. They're now 17 and 19. So, my youngest is in her last year of high school, and my son is finishing up a gap year. They're both going to be heading to college. Um, and I, did homeschool them through, uh, let's see, junior high for our, they call it middle school now for my daughter and freshman year of high school for my son. And then they went into traditional education. So um, they're, you know, like me, people that are a little off the beaten path. Um, and I think a lot of people that come to being indie authors do kind of like to make their own way. So we're a family of do-it-yourselfers. <laughs> we're, um, currently embarking my husband and I too on a, a sailing project and we're going to be cruising part time and exploring the world. So I'm sure all of that will make its way into my books too. Oh, that sounds very interesting. Uh, where are you going to go in your, in your boat? Well, we're going to start out in the Pacific Northwest. Um, we're in Oregon, but of course the Puget Sound is right out our back door. So a couple of seasons there and then make our way down to Mexico and explore the Caribbean and just sort of, come back and forth. So that is, you know, once the kids are out, that's the, the project. And it'll be interesting to see how writing fits into that. <laughs> I, I was going to say, can, can you write on a sailboat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure you can relate to this. I mean, really writers discover ways to write wherever they are. And certainly as a raising two kids and homeschooling them and working part time, I got very, very good. I don't suffer from writer's block. I open my computer wherever I am. That's great. Well, um, yeah, a lot of people, when the kids get out of the house, they, they rent an RV or something and drive around. Y'all are going to get in the boat and go <laughs> go see things that way. That's that's super. Uh, I noticed the literary themes in the book. There's you, you there's one quote in here I want to ask you about. It says, uh, the, the sisters are arguing about something, and, and one of the sisters said, no, Lila, we'll have it your way. Why, Einstein himself said that logic will get you from A to B, but imagination will get you everywhere or something like that. So you're mixing here. Uh, I mean, it's really what you're, what this quote I think is leading right into fiction writing. Is it not? I mean, because you're talking about facts on the one hand, but imagination helping you get to the through line. Yes, absolutely. Um, that seems to be a theme that pops up in a lot of my books, but I guess because in part, because I'm a writer, because we are writers, we understand this. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that for most of us, we spend much of our lives um, thinking that we know, but perhaps there's a lot of ways of understanding the world that lay outside of, of those 
channels that we receive information through. And the imagination is a great way to get outside of that and to uh, I suppose if you want to save the world or even just to create your life, there's no better way than to leave the rational world behind and just try things on for a while. Mm-hmm. So Viola is, uh, is very much a character of that type. And she um, ends up getting to the right conclusion often by means that, that really should not get her there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's all her intuition. Um, so. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, so a little bit more about the mystery that they're um, researching here. We've got this uh, Zigfield Follies uh, woman who uh, might have had an affair with Zigfield himself, and uh, suddenly she's missing early in the book. Uh, and these young women are trying to solve the mystery. Is that the idea? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Babs Leroy, let's see. Um, Singing in the Rain. There is a character in Singing in the Rain. And I, her name escapes me, but she was the prototype for um, Bab's character. Okay. And just, uh, you know, the challenge with Bab's also was just to, um, because she is kind of a caricature, a loving caricature, was still to make her sympathetic and human and not reduce her to a type. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, she is trying to make her comeback. Um, there is, I don't want to spill too many no. beans, but there are many mysterious um, players in her drama that may or may not uh, right. be near do wells. So, <laughs> well, let's do this. This will be a good time for reading. You can set it up. Tell us a little bit where, about where we are in the book and uh, and have at it. That actually leads in very well. Um, the section I selected is pretty early on in the book. Um, it is the night of Babs. Uh, come back to the stage. The twins have been invited, and so they're at the Zigfield Theater, and uh, which is this very beautiful Art Deco theater um, on Broadway. And um, they are accompanied by Mrs. Lurch, who is the housekeeper. She's Mrs. Lurch is a little bit of a Mary Poppins type. She's very prim and proper, um, and yet by the same token, she's game for any intrigue and. Um, is a former Canadian Mountie of all things and (laughs) sort of tough as nails. So she has accompanied them. They are out in front and um, waiting for uh, to go inside. And they've come up to the marquee there where the headliner is pictured. So I'll start there. The poster and Babs is not a headliner. So it's about it's about another star here. The poster pictured Miss Morgan, former nightclub torch singer draped in nothing but a first stole one hand placed strategically over her (laughs) chest. Vivian frowned. She didn't know why it should bother her, but lately she'd begun to wonder if being a glamour girl was everything it was cracked up to be. What with all the ooing and ogling and poking and prodding. I'm sure that old fuddy-duddy would agree with you. She cast her eye on a tall man dressed in black, perched on a crate at the edge of the crowd. His ravings were lost in the general murmur until a few strident words rang out. And so it is written, he cried, wagging a finger. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. Mrs. Lurch snorted, a rare departure from the usual sniff. Can't abide Bible thumpers, never could. She turned to usher the girls toward the theater doors, but Viola wouldn't budge. That man, she murmured, wandering a few steps closer to where he railed on. But just then, a long sedan pulled up to the curb, and they all turned to look. Flashbulbs popped as the handful of newsmen who had turned out for the evening rushed the car. And are we not told all we need to know in Romans 8.13? The preacher's voice trembled in a way that brought Viola's gaze back around, striking pity in her heart. Such lonely people, fanatics, what with only their terrible missions for company. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, he broke off as the sedan door opened wide. Out stepped Babs Leroy, even though there was no red carpet to receive her, only the sad gaggle of theater goers. Vivian snagged her sister by the elbow as a barrel-chested man thundered by, wearing long tails and a collapsible top hat that were decidedly demodé. Honestly, you're going to get trampled like a wounded wildebeest. But Viola's gaze was still fixed on the preacher, perched atop his makeshift pulpit, silent now as he watched Babs hurry toward the theater doors. He loathed his miserable self, self, she breathed, 
thinking of a line from the Scarlet Letter, from the Scarlet Letter, <laughs> but the quote was lost on Vivian. Not you too, Lala, she chided absently. What are you talking about? But her gaze was also distracted by Bab's agitated state as she hurried up the aisle, as though she were fleeing death itself. Could she really be that nervous? Maybe her absence from the limelight had shaken her confidence. Vivian turned her attention back to her twin. Next thing, you'll be raving away just like that ridiculous man. Viola ignored her twin's rebuke. He's just exactly like Dimsdale Viv, the preacher from my book. Oh, it all fits so perfectly. And then she goes on to speculate about the connection between her book, the the scar, the Scarlet Letter, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and how it connects to the various suspects. You there. were just, uh, that was just kind of coming out of it there. You know, the Starlet and the Scarlet, you probably had to proof that a hundred times to make sure you did. Oh, yeah. You know. It's amazing what you miss. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Well, that's great. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed reading the book. Um, I'm not quite through the end, so that's good because I can't give away the ending. And uh, ah. with, any, with any questions here. Uh, but uh, I wanted to shift here uh, a little bit to writing life discussions. Before we talk about, you know, your path from indie to traditional, I'm just curious, since you've written different kinds of novels, you know, the fantasy, the the coming of age, the young adult. Uh, this is, I'm not sure where this is. This is a mystery. It involves young sleuths. But mysteries are different. You've got to have, you know, the red herrings. You've got to have the, the, the people who might or might not have committed uh, the crime. Did you find yourself uh, having to write differently uh, when you started writing the mystery series as opposed to some of the other books that you write? Yes, yeah, very much so. Um, the way I tend to write is because I'm, I'm voice-driven, I sort of find the voice of the book or the series. And then I, I suppose in a way it's like tuning into a channel. Mm -hmm. I, I let that shape the narrative in a lot of ways. And I'm working with very different voices. Um, my Old Rue series, my fantasy series based on Russian folklore is very lyrical and um, it's not it's not funny or, or witty. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is all driven by this very lighthearted, tongue-in-cheek, humor-based um, voice. And I vacillate back and forth between writing the two series. So it's always takes a little bit of time for me to tune back into the right voice. And then once I do that, it, it seems to just fall into place. Hmm. And then of course, there's the difference in the genres and there's the fantasy genre, there's the mystery genre. I think for um, me, it's a matter of just having consumed so much of those over the years that again, sort of like tuning into a channel, um, I find that I naturally can get the hang of, you know, but you, you and I could talk about plotting and all that. Right, I mean, right, it really right. takes quite a long time to discover the way that you plot best. And I've been writing for 20 years, so it's actually taken quite a long time to fall into stride. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and we, we don't have all that time, but it, it is uh, yeah. different uh, whether you write uh, sort of, you know, like you said, voice driven. Um, but uh, sometimes you can get down a path writing a mystery and forget that, oh, wait a minute, I got to plant some things here. And that's the revision process sometimes, perhaps in the uh, in, in any book you're doing. But uh, anyway, I, I, look, you're um, you went from traditional publishing to indie publishing. So I want to talk about that for just a little bit. Uh, yes. Your, your path and why. Uh, let's talk about your path and why you shifted. Uh, and I've I've read your blog on this. I might throw in a few quotes as we do this and uh, to spark some further questions. But just give us a, a sort of a headline about what went through your mind and why you thought um, that was the right thing for you to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll give you the brief, syn brief sure. synopsis of that. So, um, again, I when I was raising my kids, I was always writing novels. I started out with children's novels. And like many writers during that time, I was looking for my agent. And I never intended to self-publish. Um, eventually, after you know, really working on my craft for a number of years, I did get an agent at um, the Sandra Dykstra Literary Agency, which is on the uh, West Coast, but it's one of the premier agencies, and they got their start representing Amy Tan and, and other people. And my agent was wonderful, and I really had that moment where a lot of you know, writers that we dream of where you know, I got my agent, and I thought I was on my way, and for about a year and a half, we worked together on two of my books. I had Vasilisa, which is the book she had signed me on the basis of. And then I wrote Believe while she was representing me. 
And we shopped both books around to New York publishers and got a lot of, you know, interest and traction, but also the sense that the books were a little bit outside the box, you know, is the voice firmly middle grade? Um, is it going to be marketable enough? And so I got a couple of requests for revision, one on each book. Um, and then I was working on the Starlet Letter. And with this book, she um, loved it, um, but she thought it would be even harder to place because as you can see, it's a very unusual voice and it's sort of young adult, it's sort of adult, not really sure where it fits on the shelf. Um, and in traditional publishing, of course, for a debut author, that represents much more of an obstacle. Mm. So we ended up parting ways, and it was in the on the eve of the pandemic. And I finally decided, you know, I think I'm ready to just get these books out into the world on my own. And so, yeah, I did lots of research about how to set up mm. my little author press and started with Believe and um, went from there. So now The Starlet Letter will be my fourth book out since 2020. Yeah, you said uh, in one of your uh, blog posts, you said, I set out to replicate the functions I had abandoned. I found beta readers, young and old, in the place of developmental editors. I hired a cover designer and a copy editor, learned how to use Adobe InDesign, how to typeset, create a website, social media platform, and finally how to distribute my creation through both digital and physical marketplaces. You said it was hard work, but intensely empowering. So um, this kind of gets into the pros and cons of doing this, right? Because there are advantages to having someone else do it. But now that you've learned it, uh, you have an element of control over what happens. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually been a revelation to publish independently and become more connected over time to the benefits of it, even though, of course, it's a very hard path. I mean, you don't have the visibility or the instant credibility that you have when you traditionally publish or the distribution systems, particularly into physical bookstores. Um, but what you do have is you always retain literal ownership of your work. And I think when I was chasing the agent and chasing the publishing world, that part of it was a little lost on me, the idea that I, I you literally do sell your book. You don't own it anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, the rights may revert to you eventually, but, you know, the industry is disincentivized to do that. Um, and that both the creative control and the entrepreneurial control for the long term are extraordinary benefits. So for me, it's turned out to be a path that I've embraced, um, but it's not an easy path. No, it's just, it's it not. And I've had yeah. uh, authors that are traditional that won't know part of that and authors who are indie who won't know part of traditionally more and some who are <laughs> a little of both. And I'm just, uh, one of the things you mentioned distribution, that seems to me to be the biggest struggle as an indie author myself is trying to figure out the, the ways to distribute. You know, that's one advantage that the traditional market has is getting into, you know, they have a distribution channel out there, right? So and now you can do a lot of things as an indie author, but it takes a lot of work. Talk about how you've made that transition, recognizing that maybe you lose a little bit on distribution, you've got to pick it up another way. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, clearly for an indie author, you know, your main marketplaces are online. That doesn't mean that they're all eBooks because of course people order physical books as well. Um, I started out distributing wide, you know, there's a debate in the, in the industry, the indie industry about whether you should just focus on Amazon um, or whether you should focus on all the others, Barnes and Noble, Apple, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and I started out because philosophically I like the wide idea, but what I found is that I sell most of my books through Amazon. And so um, I am beginning as an entrepreneur to realize that if you focus on particular aspects of your enterprise and make them work and perfect them, then you can move on to other things. And so I've pulled back to mostly an Amazon distribution, but my books are all available <clears throat> uh, through Ingram Sparks and can be ordered by bookstores nationally. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, but then you have to, of course, have a strategy for getting books on the radar of bookstores that would order you. And um, that for now is on the back burner. But the nice thing about being an indie author is that you really do have all the time in the world to work on it because the traditional sphere is really focused on that launch window and getting a book, you know, as many copies as sold when it first comes out. But for an indie author, you really are focusing on your backlist over a long period of time. So, yeah. so um, sometimes indie authors would just publish under their name. You've chosen to do an imprint with Star Creek Press. What into that? What went into that decision-making process? 
Well, I thought that, uh, you know, the press itself is a little bit, I mean, I'm at this point only publishing my own books. Mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose I haven't ruled out the idea that I might find other authors who are have a sympathy with my philosophy and that I might want to team up with them. So in part, I was laying the groundwork for that. In all likelihood, it will remain an author press. But I suppose because I write such different types of books, it also gives me a way mm -hmm. to say yeah. there's something consistent about all my, my books, even though they seem very different. Yeah, you said in that blog that my universe is perhaps smaller than I want than the one I envisioned when the powers that be tap me on the shoulder and promise me the stars, but it's all the richer because it's mine. That's a powerful statement. Do you still feel that way? Absolutely. I think what independent, independently publishing has brought home to me is the magic of each individual reader. Um, I think as a lot of us writers can get focused on all these big accolades or all these, you know, the fame and the fortune. But really why we write is that we're bringing a, a person that we haven't met into a world of our creation. And that act of generosity that somebody would take time and actually go into a world that I've constructed and disappear into that world in the way that I did as a child, just the magic of that is now at the heart of my business um, rather than chasing all the dreams that we're supposed to want. So I do find that that actually gives me sustenance on a daily basis still. Well, I found that the writers who started traditional went indie have a little bit of a leg up because they've, they've been through that process. They know what it's about. They've also been trained to make sure there's a quality product before they put it up there. And that that's why I read the little quote here about all the things that you hired out, uh, because those are all the indicia of someone who's taking their work seriously, like a traditional publisher would take their work seriously. I guess I'm you know, I guess what I'm doing here is just for those who are listening, don't just upload your book to Amazon, right? You know, it takes a lot of work and, and it should be, if you can make it look and smell and feel like what they put out traditionally, the difference is you control it and can do it yourself, right? No, that's absolutely true. Yeah. One of the things that I've started to do is both write and speak about that intersection between traditional and independent publishing, because they can learn a lot from each other. And as right. independent authors, it's incumbent on us, of course, to see the quality. And there's not those forces that are going to push back on that like there are in the traditional sphere. So, um, yeah, I, I really think that it's a big responsibility and one that every writer has to take seriously, not just for themselves, but also for the reputation of independent books at large. Yeah, you know? well, you're a good writer. I can see that you've been doing it for a while and, and, and you're putting out a great product here. I, I want to I could sit here and talk all day with you about traditional versus indie and all this, that, and the other, but we don't have time. I, I'm going to wrap it up with a question here that we ask authors. Um, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value that had you known it way back then when you were a younger writer, based on things that you've learned since then, could you boil it down to something? Hmm. What a great question. Um, I mean, I think it would be, okay, well, I can actually think of a few things, but I'll start with this. Uh, which is to turn toward your weaknesses. Um, I think that as writers, we can spend um, a lot of time either relying on our strengths to get us through, and then we ignore the things that we're maybe not as good at. You know, maybe we're not as good at plot or character or whatnot, because we see the book as an extension of ourself. And, you know, that's very human. But the sooner you can really turn to your, your weaknesses, those are the places, first of all, where you're really going to grow. But it's also the place where you can find a lot of satisfaction um, letting go of whatever your resistance is um, to developing yourself as a human being. So there's that wonderful connection between your craft and your personal development. So that's, that's what I would say to young that's Julie. <laughs> say to young Julie, yeah. Looks like young Julie's turned out pretty well in the writing world. Uh, you've gotten a lot of great awards. Uh, well, listen, uh, Julie, thank you so much for um, uh, being on the podcast with us today and sharing uh, the Starlet Letter, and we look forward to I look forward to the end of it here, and also to other books in the series, and um, to other things that you write in the future. Thanks, Landis. This has really been a delight. We have a newsletter called Beyond Three Hundred, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts. LandisWade.com, SarahArcherWrites.com, or SpellboundPublicRelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time.
Okay, here we are with Act 2. Uh, this is the writing topics. Uh, we've got uh, first a blog post uh, that's not a blog post. It's actually a tip. We first got a tip <laughs> from Charlotte Litt. Uh, this is with Paul Reale. Uh The tip is embracing beach read. So let's listen in, Paul. Hi, I'm Paul Reale, co-founder of Charlotte Lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is one of a series of tips written especially for summertime. Today, I want to talk about beach books. It's easy to make fun of beach books. You can picture this, right? A woman, and I say this because that's the stereotype, in a canvas beach chair, under an umbrella, feet in the sand, reading something light, something unserious, something that's clearly not literature. If you ask, what are you reading? She's likely to say, oh, it's nothing, or oh, it's trash, or oh, it's just a beach book. My organization is called Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, yet I stand in defense of beach books. And not only that, I encourage you to try one. Here are three reasons why. First, anything that has one reading a story is a good thing. Second, there is a reason that beach reads are popular, and that's because they tend to contain really good storytelling. You can assuage any possible guilt that you're not reading Don DeLillo or Jesmyn Ward by reading like a writer. Pay attention to how the characters are introduced, where the inciting incident is placed, how conflict is shown on the page, whether the dialogue crackles, how the middle keeps from sagging, and so on. Third, you don't have to select something that is on the shelf as a beach book. What qualifies as a beach book anyway? I'd say it's anything that lifts you out of yourself and makes you want to stay there, just like vacations are supposed to do. So your action step is to go and find that book you'd never pick up otherwise, something that's just there for entertainment and page turning. Maybe pick up a few, because if one doesn't grab you in 50 pages, set it aside and start another. I've never been able to get through Walden, and I've long felt some literary shame about that. But no such worries if you don't finish your beach read. So enjoy. The one thing I know for sure about guilty pleasures is that they are still pleasures. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. All right. uh, Bravo to uh, Paul for this one. I can hear the waves crashing and the beer is cold and I'll fight that stereotype because I'm on the beach, uh, you know, drinking a cold and reading that uh, Western or reading that Mm -hmm. uh, latest Baldacci or John Grisham or whatever. That's that's a great way to pass time on the beach. I just wonder. And it's so great coming from Paul with the Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, because sometimes people think that, uh, you know, when you talk about literature, you know, you you're just talking about the high flute and stuff, right? You know, the stuff that uh, only this 1% of writers ever <laughs> achieve, you know, and so, but there's so much great storytelling out there and what better place to read it than on the beach. Hannah, I know you love reading on the beach, right? Oh my God. I love it. Yeah. And I love this tip so much. I think it's just like, cause he's right. You know, if you ask someone what they're reading on the beach, half the time they're going to be like, uh, it's just this stupid <laughs> book by Elon Hildebrand or whatever it is, you know, like it's just like, I don't know. It is, it's or nice you're hiding to have. The co- you're hiding the cover of the, mm-hmm. of the bodice ripper, right? This only Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you're just like, Oh, it's just a stupid thing. Like, don't even ask me like whatever. And it's like, I mean, it's fine. It's like why you watch a show like sweet Magnolias or something, you know, like Virgin river or whatever, you know, yeah. these like shows that are, ridiculous it's like beach reads and sometimes you just want to read something that you can literally read in like an hour right <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean just yeah. like give me a story like it's still a story and i like how he says that he's like you know it's it is it's it's a pleasure it's it's not like i don't it doesn't have to be a guilty pleasure so right. to speak but it is funny how that works it's like i feel like when people ask you like what are you reading lately? It's like you feel pressured to be like, well, I'm rereading the uh, <laughs> the Iliad. Entire, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Lord of the Flies and, and yeah. ironing yeah. her uh, yeah. outlining yeah. The, th- the major themes. Yeah. Catch like, 22. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Slaughterhouse Catch 5. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Like, yeah. no, you can read like George Orwell. That's just yeah, so I was just getting into him this morning. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, Odyssey. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> Put the Odyssey down. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? Do you like the beach for reading? Do you have another uh, place you fall into this guilty pleasure, just reading whatever you like? 
Yeah, well, I think I, I do also fall into that trap of like not wanting to just read guilty pleasure books, feeling like that's not enough mm. somehow, um, even though they can be fun. And I also think it's funny that like so many of our book recommendations for the summer are things like like hard sci-fi or like the killer <laughs> angels or like not really yeah. beach reads. But but yeah, I, I think there's definitely a place for books that are just kind of light and fun and entertaining. Um, we all need that in our lives. Sometimes life is hard and heavy and, and you want an escape from the world. But also I think that just because a book is light in tone doesn't necessarily mean that it's light weight, if that makes mm, sense. Like yeah. for me, I, I love reading and writing um, both comedy and drama. And from my personal experience, I feel like writing something that's funny is at least as hard as writing something that's mm. not because ideally for a comedy, you have all the same ingredients that you would have in a great drama. You have a strong story, you have three dimensional compelling characters, you have an interesting setting, like you have to have all the same things, but then you, you have to make it funny on top of that. So it's, it's not like you can take away good characterization or take away a strong structure or anything and replace it with humor. You just have to have the lightness on top of that. So mm-hmm. um, sometimes those those light quote unquote books or beach reads are deceptively deep or deceptively mm-hmm. hard to write. So I would not um, cast them aside for sure. Yeah, not at all. That's great stuff. Thanks, Paul, for that. Uh, appreciate the embracing beach reads uh, recommendation. And for those that are listening out there, I hope that your beach reading is going well. We'll be right back with uh, our blog post in just a moment. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, here we are with uh, Robert Babrod, author of In Transit Pastor, Making the Journey Matter. Uh, the title of his blog post is Writing That Next Chapter. Uh, Sarah, tell us about Robert. Um, Sure. Robert is very well educated. He holds a master's in European Union law from King's College London, a Juris Doctorate and a Bachelor of Arts degree in English and Secondary English Education. Um, He's the author of the nonfiction memoir In Transit Passenger, Making the Journey Matter, as well as a West Hampton West Hampton Beach Christmas and Love in Budapest. Um, He's passionate about travel, history, culture, reading, languages and the arts. Assisting Masters in European Union Law from King's College, Will. Yeah. And a JD, another another lawyer on the show. We're just, you know, we're, we're reaching our quote of those. So <laughs> um, he, he, he just snuck in. So, uh, well, let's listen in to um, what uh, he has to share today. My name is Robert Babrad, and this is the blog post, Writing That Next Chapter. He looked around the writing room. Intimidation filled the air. There was no way to know what was coming next. The pen was picked up, and then something happened. I wrote those few sentences above to illustrate a few examples of what I've learned for getting over the often daunting hurdle of writing a new chapter for your book. Number one, start amid the action. Start writing your chapter amid something that one of your characters is already doing. Your character is already busy and involved with their own life when the reader picks up your book. Start there. Something has to be done or achieved by your character before the reader even knew about them or became involved. Consider the reader to be this curious kind of person who is suddenly eavesdropping or watching some key event or moment that is already in motion. Start the chapter by bringing the reader into that moment. Try asking, what's going on and why? This has been a big help to me when I struggled with starting a new chapter. Number two, avoid summarizing. Answer the question, what are my characters doing right now? Keep asking, what exactly is my character doing right now? Describe that in detail. Then ask that same question again throughout your writing of the chapter. This is a question that I personally have to ask myself repeatedly, especially in the middle of a chapter, in order to avoid the risk of summarizing. This is also a great time to describe the specific and unique attributes of an individual character in the chapter, mentioning what they were wearing, their beliefs about something, or physical characteristics, such as how they walk or speak, can all be presented alongside the detail of the action. You can describe them responding to a particular situation while giving the reader some more detailed insight into their habits, appearance, or personality of the character themselves. This is a chance to bring the action of the story and the character themselves to life for the reader. 
Number three, end the chapter with suspense or cliffhanger. Keep the reader motivated and turning pages. I try to end a new chapter with something that will keep the reader engaged and interested. Leave the reader hanging as the chapter ends and wanting to know more. Avoid wrapping up the chapter neatly or providing a conclusion to whatever action is already taking place so that the reader will feel compelled to read on and to find out what eventually happens in the next chapter. I feel this makes the reading experience more enjoyable for the reader. I like books where the action keeps moving and keeps me engaged. So I try to do the same with my writing. Each chapter is a scene that adds something to the plot. That's actually another key that I try to keep in mind. Is this chapter moving the plot forward? If it isn't, it's a chapter that you might want to cut out of the book. A successful chapter for me is often one that moves the plot forward and ends with suspense, an unanswered question, a lack of resolution to something important, or a cliffhanger. Keeping these questions in mind has helped me to continually improve my writing. Conclusion. These are all strategies that have worked for me and I hope will help you too with writing that next chapter of your book. If you don't know how to start a new chapter, consider starting it in the middle of the action. Try not to summarize as you get further into that chapter. Keep asking yourself, what are my characters doing now? Then write that down. You can add in details here at the same time to flesh out your characters and make them more lifelike as well. If you're unsure about how to end the chapter, Conclude it with suspense, a cliffhanger, a lack of resolution, or an unanswered question. This will motivate your reader, and motivates me too as an author, to describe what happens in my next chapter. It's also good to continually ask if the chapter you're writing is actually moving the plot of your story forward. If so, that's great. If not, you may want to cut that particular chapter out. All of these strategies have been helpful to me with each book that I've written, and I hope that they help you as well. All right. Uh, thanks, Robert. That was uh, very helpful. Um, I'm nodding my head as you're talking <laughs> through here about these various techniques. Uh, I've got a couple of thoughts, but uh, Sarah, first you, which one of these uh, ideas uh, resonated most with you? Um, well, I think they were all great. I think it, it made me think of this dictum that you hear a lot in screenwriting to enter the scene late and leave the scene early, um, which I think applies as well to chapters here. Like you, you don't necessarily need to start right at the beginning of the action. Sometimes you can start in the middle of something and readers can kind of follow along, like give them credit for being able to figure out what's happening as you go. Um, and I think that by doing that, you keep your pacing tighter and you also make the characters feel more real because you get the impression that we're just walking in on this person who existed before the story or the scene or the chapter was taking place and it's going to exist afterwards and we're kind of just dropping in on a chapter of this person's life and they're a real person and they're doing other things that we're not able to see um so yeah i think this is really great advice and also the thing about uh resisting the urge to summarize as you're in the middle and, and making sure that you're kind of checking in and showing what the character is actually doing moment by moment also gives that feeling that this is a real real person who's doing things and we're actually there in the scene with them that's great. And, and Hannah's in the middle of <laughs> feeding Gwen here. So maybe we'll see. Can, can you jump in? Hannah, can, or look, you're really ambidextrous here. You got four arms, oh, I yeah. think, you know. I, I literally have like, like I said, I've, I feel like I <laughs> I never knew how much I could do at one time yeah, <laughs> until yeah. recently. Imagine, um, imagine this listeners, Hannah is leaning up toward the microphone, uh, holding on to Gwen with her left hand. With her right hand, she's got a bottle, and Gwen's kind of moving all around as she's drinking it. And yet oh Hannah's God, providing commentary here on Robert's uh, <laughs> blog post. I'm trying my best. <laughs> now, if that's not a publicist that you want in your corner, I do not know what is. You know? <laughs> oh, my God. Actually, this post brought up a question that I just wanted to ask you guys. I'm kind of interested to know, do you prefer short, like, quick chapters, or do you like longer ones? Hmm. So, I guess it depends. I, yeah, we'll give the lawyer answer. It depends, right? So um, yeah. I think that I, I've learned that when you're writing a mystery or a thriller that you want to keep moving, um, you want white space on the page. You don't want long paragraphs uh, and short chapters are nice, you know. Um, but because sometimes you'll see it, it really gets tiring sometimes when you look at a book and there's a whole chapter on, a, on one chapter on a page or I mean, one paragraph on a page I meant. And, uh, 
So try to keep the paragraph short, um, white space, and the shorter the chapter, the better, I think, if you're writing a thriller um, or a mystery. But uh, I don't know. Sarah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think that for a lot of us are like increasingly ADHD. Right, right. <laughs> and so shorter <laughs> chapters sometimes work for shorter attention spans. And I think readers like that. Um, it's it's a good way to kind of, if you have like really long, unbroken chapters, then you're really just relying purely on your storytelling and language, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. if you can pull that off, that's great. But breaking it up in some way, whether it's chapter breaks or section breaks or switching the perspective or putting in like a, a letter or some kind of other media right, or something right. like finding some way to break things up in the middle is an easy way to kind of keep readers engaged and keep it feeling like it's flowing along. And I'll add uh, a couple of things that I liked about the post. Uh, he talked about action at the same time you're revealing character. You know, the, the, the plot is moving forward. You don't have a chapter that uh, doesn't move the plot forward, but there's also forward momentum in every chapter. But while you're having that forward momentum in the action, you're also revealing uh, things about the character's personalities. I remember that John Hart, when I interviewed him on the podcast, this is a quote, I think, from one of the quote books we've got. He talked about how he liked to, you know, put four or five characters in a room and set somebody on fire, you know, and to see how the other characters react. You know, somebody's going to scream. Somebody's going to try to run out of the room. So he said, hopefully, somebody's going to have the presence of mind to try to put the fire out, you know. <laughs> and so you can reveal... Lots about the different people and their characters and their personalities in the room by doing something you know, dramatic. And when you do something dramatic in a scene, you're going to see how the characters react. Are they going to be heroic and come to the rescue? Are they going to run for their lives? Are they going to do something really strange as a result of uh, what's happening in that chapter? So I like that. I like the forward momentum. Um, and uh, I guess I would only modify my earlier answer to Hannah's question and that, and that I agree with uh, Sarah that uh, short, dropping short things in between longer chapters also helps, you know, break the momentum. All right, well, uh, let's do this. Let's, um, we're going to jump now uh, right after this to our book recommendations. And uh, also we've got uh, elevator pitches and what's coming next. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, here we are in Act 3. We've got some book recommendations. Sarah, you're up. Um, Sure. So this time I'm recommending Stories of Your Life and Others by Ted Chang, um, which is a short story collection that he wrote. I believe it was his first collection that he published. And this was my first time reading his work. And I'm basically in love. Like I I should have read him years ago. He's one of our best living sci-fi authors. He's won the Hugo and the Nebula multiple times. I think he's even like turned the Hugo Award down sometimes. (laughs) Um, He's an amazing writer. And the, uh, the work that he's probably best known for is the novella Story of Your Life, which is kind of the title story of this collection. Um, It was the basis for the movie Arrival, which came out several years ago with Amy Adams and uh, Jeremy Renner, I think. Um, And it's about this linguist who's brought in by the government when aliens come to Earth and she's assigned with trying to translate, which obviously is a huge challenge because it's not just (laughs) like figuring out another human language, but you're communicating with these beings who perceive the world and and communicate and think in totally different ways than we do and she has to try to figure out how to do that um but it also goes into like her her family life with her husband and her daughter and it gets really emotional and touching and and the way that he plays with tense and time is just incredibly done um and every story in the collection is so good and they're also different there's one about um the building of the tower of babel but he approaches it like okay what if an actual ancient civilization was actually trying to build a tower that could Hmm. potentially reach through the sky up to God. Like what would that actually physically look like with the technology that they had at the time? Um, And what do they find when they get up there? There's a story about a man who has a brain injury and as a side effect of the treatment, he starts to develop superhuman intelligence. Um, And you're in his perspective in first person the whole time. And you really see in his thoughts, like how his mind grows and changes and turns Hmm. basically like evolving from human into like this, human computer hybrid almost um every story in the book is is so fascinating and so well done and so well written i mean he's he's truly a genius so i definitely would recommend anything that he's written all right that's great uh hannah what you got for us that's high praise i gotta check this man out (laughs) 
Um, the book I'm recommending actually could kind of pass for a beach read, I think. It's uh, The Maidens by Alex Michelides. And I don't know if you guys read The Silent Patient, but that was his first book. And it is probably the best thriller I've ever read in my life. Um, it was just one of those books. And he, he writes all of his characters in both books. They're uh, therapists. So it has kind of like a extra layer to it where you, you do get kind of like your gears turning in terms of like how do people become how they are kind of deal, but it's so fast paced that you're just like, Oh my God. I remember uh, the silent patient, me and my husband were painting the uh, porch and I kept being like, I gotta go to the bathroom. And I would go inside <laughs> and like read for a while. And he would come <laughs> in and be like, what are you doing? And I was like, I gotta know what happens. Um, <laughs> but so he's Hannah amazing. will do anything to get out of painting the porch. You're just like, oh, Tom yeah. Sawyer. that's, yeah, that's so. true. I, I also <laughs> wasn't into it. We never finished that job. We hired people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but your husband realized you were not going to be any help. I told him a, cer- a recent. I was like, you know, let's just hire people. I'm not yeah. interested. Yeah, um, <laughs> yes, uh, but the maidens is really good. It's it's about. It's also really fast paced. It's about a, a therapist whose niece um, she loses. I think it's her roommate uh, or a friend that Pat is murdered, um, and so she goes to visit her at Cambridge and she tries to help her solve the mystery of like who did it and what happened and um it's kind of like a a little culty too which i love a good cult uh theme (laughs) and uh with the greek mythology department so it's it's like a really it's a great book where you learn a lot about greek mythology too so it's about you know got some therapy themes got some greek mythology themes got the thriller the murder so and i read it in about like i don't know hours a number of hours so (laughs) a good a good one to take to the beach with you that's great yeah and so we talked about this uh, beach reads in the last episode. We're doing it again um, here, uh, or a couple episodes ago we did. And uh, I think, uh, Sarah, you were talking about how the killer angels might be a little intense for the beach. But, <laughs> Isn't but, see, it also like a thousand pages long or something? Yeah, yeah. But I like, I like uh, historical fiction, and I like being on the beach and reading historical fiction. And I remembered these books as I was cleaning out uh, some books recently with our move. And uh, the... The Last Full Measure by Jeff Sherrod, 1998, is a novel of Civil War. Uh, it's the sequel to The Killer Angels. Um, the Killer Angels was by his father, his Pulitzer Prize-winning story of the Battle of Gettysburg. That was, uh, uh, it was sort of considered the classic Civil War novel. It was the number one bestseller based on the motion picture, um, Gettysburg. And I really enjoyed getting into the whole, I mean, I'm not a big Civil War buff, but um it just sort of brought to life this whole uh, just tragic circumstance that was Gettysburg. And then the last full measure, um, it was a sequel. It followed uh, Ulysses Grant and Joshua Chamberlain after Gettysburg as they pursue Robert E. Lee and his army to Appomattox. So uh, for those that are fans of uh, that era or you like historical fiction, it is long, as Sarah said, but it uh, it is engaging and it does uh, bring to light this part of history. I think I read it before we went one time to Gettysburg. My kids will never forgive me because we went all over that place, you know, looking at everything. And they're like, come on, dad, let's come on, come on. We got, let's do something else. You know, we've seen enough of the battlefield, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, good book. Uh, check it out. Uh, and here we are with Mark West with his uh, tip for the week. Hello, this is Mark West with the storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is a new novel called Carolina Moonset by Matt Goldman. This book is set here in the Carolinas. It's set in Beaufort, South Carolina. And it's part mystery, part family story. The story opens when the central character, Joey Green, returns to his family home in Beaufort to help take care of his elderly father, who is in the final stages of dementia. Joey Green's father cannot remember what happened to him yesterday, but his recall of events that happened decades ago are things that he can bring up in detail. One of the things Joy discovers is that his father has secrets, and these secrets have deadly consequences for the present of the story. This is a suspenseful and engrossing novel, and I highly recommend it. All right, uh, so hopefully you'll find something in those recommendations to uh, to read this summer. Um, we've got a couple of uh, elevator pitches. Uh, 
Actually, we've got two from uh, the same author. He's been on the show before. Let's listen in. Mithras Conspiracy by M.J. Pollelli is a fast-paced thriller set in modern Rome. When a series of grotesque murders rocks Rome, Commissario Marco Leone uncovers a sinister cult threatening to overturn the Italian government and destroy the Catholic Church. For fans of history-based thrillers and religious mysteries like The Da Vinci Code, this gripping and thought-provoking novel will stay with you. Yes, good job. Um, enjoyed uh, interviewing Michael on the podcast. And, uh, hey, he didn't give it just one. He gave us two. So let's listen into his other as well. American Conspiracy is a fast-paced thriller that follows Detective Jim Murphy as he investigates the assassination of the president-elect. As he digs deeper, he uncovers a vast conspiracy involving a powerful pharmaceutical tycoon, a coup plot, and a secret plan to cheat death. The fate of the United States is at stake. It's a heart-pounding journey full of suspense and intrigue that will keep you guessing until the very end. All right, that's great. Uh, that was actually the book we had uh, Michael on the podcast for. You can always scroll back, go to our guest list, and click on that to listen to that interview. Thank you, uh, Michael, for submitting those. And uh, if you're listening and if you're an author and you've got a book, you can submit your own elevator pitches, and we'll get them up uh, probably uh, in the fall. Um, so uh, let's see, where are we? We are to the point where we're going to talk about what's coming next uh, on the podcast. Yeah, uh, next time is actually episode 350, so we're excited to celebrate that come quickly. <laughs> um, but in the next episode, we feature New York Times bestselling author Brian Selznick and his novel Big Tree, which Booklist calls an enthralling and expansive meditation on what it means to be alive on this planet. Um, legendary film director Steven Spielberg, who helped to create the idea for this book, had this to say, the tale of the natural world is the greatest story we have to tell, and Brian delivers a brilliant chapter of that tale throughout the pages of Big Tree. We're also going to have a feature on book six of the Right Quote series called Writing Community, Revision, and Editors. Uh, we're going to share audio versions of the foreword and the reflections and a peek by the hosts at some of our favorite quotes. And we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip, elevator pitches, and our book recommendations. All right. Uh, well, let's see. Hannah and Gwen, can you take us out of here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's literally like trying, trying so hard to kick over my desk right now. <laughs> like, please don't do that. <laughs> Lots of things on here. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Gwen, you ready? Read on, ride on, and rock on. <laughs> <laughs> How is that? Uh-huh.